Welcome to Vermont Edition. I'm Bob Kinzel. We're nearing the end of the 2017 legislative session, and the fate of a number of key bills is still up in the air. Will lawmakers pass a state budget that doesn't contain any new tax increases? Will a paid family leave bill make it through at least one chamber before adjournment? And there's also the issue of marijuana. Last year, the Senate passed a bill creating a state-regulated model with retail stores and the taxation of marijuana. But the plan was very unpopular in the House. A bill allowing for the personal possession of marijuana emerged from the House Judiciary Committee this year, but the plan hasn't made it to the floor for a vote. Wyndham Senator Jeanette White is one of the sponsors of the original Senate bill. She's not happy with the delay in the House. And she doesn't like the approach that the House is taking. It is so disappointing that the House couldn't, couldn't pull something together. It does nothing to decrease the black market. On, it, 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 in fact, it encourages it because now you're going to have, be able to have um, a certain amount or an increased amount and it'll be completely legal. But there's no place for you to get it. This morning, the Senate voted 21 to 9 to pass out their legislation once again. Why did the Senate take this action? And what are some of the key bills that might be approved in the final weeks of the session? These are some of the questions we have for our guest today, Senate President Tim Ash. Tim, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Bob. Let's start off with the budget. The House has given its approval to a state budget for next year that doesn't require any tax or fee increases. The budget plan also doesn't include the spending increases for child care, early education, and higher education that Governor Scott proposed back in January. Do you think the Senate will follow the House's lead and adopt a budget that doesn't require any new revenue? Well, I, I think the answer to that is yes, and uh, we're very fortunate this year uh, for a variety of uh, factors that help explain that. First, uh, the number of people who are utilizing a number of the programs like Medicaid uh, that has been going down, the cost associated with providing those services, mostly to lower-income people, uh, so Medicaid and several other human services programs. And that's to the tune of millions of dollars of underutilization. So that's really helped get us to a bottom line that doesn't require new taxes. The other thing is, and this is something that's a little inside baseball, but every year in the past, a fee bill has been brought forward. Fees are different than taxes in that they're meant to pay for the actual programs that they administer. And they are reviewed on a once-every-three-year schedule. Well, this year, the fee bill would have produced $1,500, roughly, to support a $1.5 billion general fund. So the no-fee pledge this year was actually quite easy because it didn't really have any effect. But I think we're going to get there without new taxes and fees this year. There seemed to be a fair amount of support for more money for early education, more money for child care, more money for higher education. Did you conclude that it just wasn't possible to do that without a tax increase? Well, we're uh, finalizing the Senate appropriations budget today. So as we speak, there's uh, I'm, I'm missing an action, but there's six others in a room full of uh, some panicked and other happy uh, interest groups who are probably watching the proceedings. Uh, we do hope to make an increased investment in higher education, particularly our state college system, which right now is in dire need of some uh, infusion of cash to support its operating. We know that the system has some stresses it's under, uh, so this is not a solution, but we hope to make a substantial increase in investment there. And on the early ed front, if things fall into place the way we hope they will, we expect to make a several million dollar increase investment in early education as well. I should say, it, it, the the child care centers and others, um, not the pre-K system per se. 
Back in early January, when you were on Vermont Edition, you expressed great concern about how proposed budget cuts from the Trump administration could affect the state of Vermont. Here's what you said. Making sure we're prepared uh, for whatever comes from the new Trump administration, which has me very freaked out and has people across the state uh, who rely on the state budget process very freaked out. A state like Vermont, which is very dependent on Medicaid funding, the federal matching dollars, if we lost $100 million, I mean, I don't even want to tell you how devastating that would be, not just for the state budget, which is just a bunch of numbers on pages, but for the people who would lose their insurance, lose benefits, uh, and so on. So is one of the major reasons you're not supporting a tax tax increase at this time is that you may need this revenue capacity come fall? Well, Bob, I'm going to tell you something, and I hope you'll just believe me. And first of all, I have to say, sometimes it's refreshing when you hear something you've said in the past and you don't recoil in horror at the words that came out of your mouth. Uh, But I have never arrived in the Senate. This is my ninth year, and I don't believe other members of the Senate arrive with their first order of business to figure out how to raise taxes. The first order of business is to decide what the state government should be providing in terms of programs and activities and investments. If existing resources pay for it, that's, that's great. So it's only when we are not able to meet those needs that the first question is then how, to, how do we figure out how to put more resources on the table. But your larger question, which I will agree with, is that this is a time to be rather sober in our decision-making in light of the great volatility in Washington. I don't think we have any more clarity today than we did back when I made those comments in January about what we'll see either from the uh, GOP Congress or the pressure that we put on it by the Trump administration. We know that everything they say is equally disturbing, uh, as I had commented back then. Um, But in truth, we still uh, don't have clarity and we won't likely have clarity until late September, early October, when Congress hopefully passes a budget for the upcoming fiscal year, which is why working with the speaker uh, and with the governor, we're trying to just pencil in a couple dates in late October in the event that we have to come back and make major adjustments because of federal federal cuts. So if you have an approach that you don't want to raise taxes, uh, does it also mean, though, you don't tackle really big things? You don't do free college tuition. You don't do primary health care for all. Are you restricted in some ways uh, by not raising new revenue? Well, I think it's certainly true that if we decided tomorrow to raise $100 million in new taxes, we could pay for about $100 million in new spending. And the question is whether, first of all, uh, it would be desirable to make those kinds of investments. You mentioned primary care. I'll just take that as an example. We have very close to universal primary care now. And so what's really being discussed is replacing the way we almost have universal primary care now with a publicly financed universal primary care system. Well, that isn't a straightforward proposition. It's not just a question of, do we have the courage to raise a couple hundred million dollars in taxes? You have to say, what are we really getting for that overhaul of that piece of the healthcare system? So there are there areas that could use more investment? Sure. But we also have to make sure the programs are being run uh, with, with high quality. And so there is always a first order of business, which is to make sure the programs are being run properly, that the investments we currently make are being utilized uh, to their fullest, before we then turn to the next question of how to pour more money into it. Let's talk to Paula, who's calling from Enosburg. Hi, Paula. Welcome to the program. Hi there. Uh, Senator Ash, I'm glad that you mentioned universal primary care because that's what I wanted to 
call about. Uh, last night I went to a town hall meeting in Montpelier hosted by Lieutenant Governor Dave Zuckerman and some other legislators and uh, many health care workers and people and heard testimony from people. And a lot of the testimony was very emotional testimony about how people don't have access to primary health care or health care because of either not having insurance or not or having high deductibles that keep them from using the health insurance they have. So it's easy to say, oh, we almost have uh, universal primary care, but we don't really functionally. We don't. And this, uh, the universal primary care bill was, had 14 sponsors. It was very Looked, the chances looked good. Uh, it, it wasn't involving any costs. It was actually just asking the state fiscal office to come up with three different possible ways of paying for it. So it was a, a, just further looking at this idea. And this is such a forward-looking, cost-saving, and life-saving, sensible bill that gets that's uh, covering a, a, a basic sort of the best way, the best investment in healthcare that we can have at a very little relatively little cost, but it's just extremely disappointing nothing happened with it. And I'm just wondering what, why didn't, why did it uh, die in the Senate? And you spent three weeks talking about whether doctors should get free food from lobbyists, but you didn't spend any time talking about a program that would, in, in being implemented, would save lives. So why not? And what's its future next year? Okay, Paula, thanks very much for your phone call. Well, first, I, I don't think we spent three weeks talking about whether doctors should be able to eat crudite at conferences. Um, that uh, was, I believe, a very brief uh, debate in a committee and in the Senate floor uh, on a minor issue. The the, the issue of uh, why a particular bill didn't pass the Senate Health and Welfare Committee um, the bill did not get out of the committee and that we have a committee process for a reason. They review bills to see if things are ready for prime time and they're desirable and doable, uh, and the bill didn't get out of committee. So the prospects for that are similar to many other uh, bills uh, that include good ideas, and we, we see what the discussion in the off season looks like when we come back in January. But what I will say, and I certainly agree that we have improvements to make in this and in many other policy areas, that last year the Senate – uh, initiated and the House agreed to an increase of $4 million for primary care uh, reimbursements for people who take Medicaid patients, which we know has helped uh, strengthen and possibly save some primary care practices around the state. And this year, the Senate budget is going to include another approximately $2 million increase in reimbursements for primary care furthering uh, access. So we have more to do for sure, but it's not because we have not been making progress, which we have. Do you think this bill will get more uh, examination next year? Well, the the, the committee really. I I, uh, I sometimes get accused of letting the committees do too much, but you know each person is elected for, by their own voters for a reason. And so we have five people who are terrific uh, public health conscious individuals on our health and welfare committee, and we'll see what work they can do. And just just for clarity, the bill that was being proposed, while it did ask for an exploration of ways to pay for it, did did suggest that we were definitely going to use a publicly financed system, which is a commitment of, of more than a small number of dollars. Uh, it would be a huge increase in publicly financed dollars. Admittedly, it would come, uh, it would see a reduction in some other expenses, but it was a little bit more than a study as described by the caller. So let's talk about the legalization of marijuana. The Senate passed a bill last year legalizing marijuana. It was a state-regulated system with retail stores, taxation of pot, 
Not much support in the House for this approach. The session ended with no action. Senate leaders vowed not to take this bill up again until the House had voted on a plan. However, a bill allowing personal possession of marijuana is now stalled in the House. And with perhaps two weeks to go in the current session, you decided to bring this bill back to the floor of the Senate. It passed this morning by a vote of 21 to 9. So given the situation in the House, why did you do this? Well, I think if anybody who's been uh, listening to your program and following the news uh, the last few months knows that the House has had a start and stop approach this year. I think they arrived uh, with the intent to move forward in some way on uh, changing the way we handle marijuana in the state. Uh, the Senate was sitting back kind of waiting to receive uh, the House strategy on that. And for a variety of reasons that are uh, no one's fault, the House wasn't able to get a bill over to the Senate. I think members of the Senate were uh, desiring, uh, and by bringing the bill forward today, uh, uh, trying to accomplish making sure that in the months ahead that the discussion about how to proceed uh, be a more expansive discussion than the bill that the House was discussing. Uh, increasingly, we have the state of Maine, we have Massachusetts, Canada to our north, further to the south, Rhode Island, um, discussions and actions uh, moving towards a regulated system to try and keep marijuana out of the hands of young people to have a controlled system uh, which reduces the black market. And I think that the Senate action makes sure that that full range of issues will be on the table as people discuss uh, how to move forward. So uh, admittedly, there is not time, I don't believe, in this session. I don't have any, I'm not crossing my fingers, nor would I suggest this is the top priority in the weeks ahead. But this, this, this makes sure that the discussion that Vermonters have said they want to have, uh, will continue to have, uh, isn't limited to just whether you get to have two or three plants in your backyard, but rather is about should we have a regulated system the way we have with, with alcohol. So in passing this bill today, you don't expect the House to take it up in the next two weeks. It's hard to see that that could happen. You know, there was some discussion today, and certainly been, it's been raised by Governor Scott about the whole idea of having a roadside test to determine if an individual is driving impaired, uh, sort of like a breathalyzer test for alcohol. Uh, the governor says he'll support perhaps a legalization bill if it has a good roadside test. What about that issue? Well, I think roadside safety and it's for any drug, um, including alcohol, uh, is important. And the, the, the one way I would say that we should make sure we think about in reaction to the question is, first off, there are people driving today under the influence of not just marijuana, but opiates and a whole range of other substances. So this wouldn't introduce a new situation on our roadways. That said, making sure we have the best technology to make sure people are not driving under the influence is important. Uh, the bill it, it provides funds to support uh, drug recognition experts, which are law enforcement officials trained in determining whether someone's driving under the influence. So the technology is going to improve. I mean, we can, you know, send ships to outer space. I think we are probably not far off from a company developing a simple roadside test um, so that we can move forward that. But I think the Senate unquestionably shares the governor's concern in that regard. And in the discussion on the Senate floor today, that point was made and agreed to, I think, uh, across all perspectives, even those who oppose the bill. So we've got eight states now that have legalized marijuana, also the District of Columbia. They've all done it through a voter referendum process. No state has legalized marijuana through a legislative process. So how does dealing with this issue in a legislative arena 
change the dynamics of the debate? Well, legislators have to behave and do behave very differently than uh, voters do in terms of expressing their uh, thoughts. So if you go to a state like California, most major policy now is decided by huge amounts of money coming in for and against various uh, initiatives. And sometimes voters are crystal clear on precisely what the wording does, and sometimes they're not so crystal clear on that. So Vermont is, I believe, at an advantage that we don't allow huge infusions of cash to sometimes confuse or obfuscate the real purposes behind policy uh, votes. Uh, But it definitely makes it more difficult. Each legislator doesn't uh, have the comfort of saying, well, I'm going to vote to move it forward because the voters have clearly told me I have to. So in our instance here in Vermont, the way we go about our business, this has been the same with uh, the gay marriage vote uh, in which we were the only legislature who did it uh, of our own initiative and not because we were forced to by either a court or voter referendum. Um, We have to say honestly when we run for election how we stand on these issues. And if the voters don't like our approach on that issue or a number of issues, they send someone else. And so um, it uh, it does make us more accountable and personally responsible for the outcome of policies. In my opinion, that's a good way to go about things. Let's talk about health care again for just a second. The Scott administration this week said it'd like to have a uniform health care policy for all teachers, one where the state would negotiate those health care benefits. The state's teachers union, the Vermont NEA, strongly opposes the idea, says the plan will take away the bargaining rights of teachers at the local level. What's your position on this? Do you support a statewide health care contract for all teachers? Well, I I should begin by saying I don't want to be involved in a proxy war between press releases from uh, the teachers and the governor's office. Um, I'll start. The the proposal is arrived rather late. Uh, I think when uh, we're planning to adjourn in about two weeks, uh, this is a very serious and substantial policy change. So just from a timing point of view, it's a rather unusual uh, timing to be dropping a proposal this this grand in its uh, scale. Um, I have believed firmly in collective bargaining as a, just as a matter of principle, um, dating back to my time on the Burlington City Council. And this really is a departure from that because typically in a union negotiation, the employer and employee sit down and they hash it out. In this case, you would be having that negotiation occur between people who are not in an employer-employee relationship. So as a general matter, I would say that it starts from a position of not supporting this at all. Although, if there are ways to save money in uh, our healthcare expenditures in general, but also through our teachers' uh, plans, uh, I'm open, and as is the Senate, to discussion about that. Well, Justin Rodison wanted to know uh, why you're opposed to helping local school boards find savings in a way that makes certain that teachers don't have to pay more. Justin thinks it looks like you're le- you're working for the unions and not the taxpayers. Well, I, I don't know what uh, Justin would be referring to because uh, as far as I know, yesterday two press releases were sent, which is the first anyone has heard about this proposal. <laughs> so it's not as if the Senate has been uh, marching in the streets arm in arm with anyone. Uh, and frankly, I believe there's no more than three members of the Senate who have even seen a piece of paper which articulates what this plan is. So what I'm really trying to describe to Justin and anyone else listening is that if you're going to make a substantial change that affects tens of thousands of people in Vermont who happen to be teachers, their health care policies, you can't, with two weeks left, hand the piece of paper to three or four people and then start accusing people of being recalcitrant for not already having arrived at the conclusion you hope they'll arrive at. Um, So if this has any merit... 
it will have to be something that would be considered in the future. But I know that it will be largely uphill for reasons that are embedded in decades of decision making that has honored the relationship between employer and employee. We got this email from Cheryl who wrote, uh, I've heard about a $35 million housing bond that would address some important affordable issues in the state. Are you going to pass it? Well, I think there's a strong desire to do so, both in the Senate and the House, and I know the governor uh, as well. This is a proposal housing groups have been talking about for a little more than a year, and it, uh, I was happy to see it in the governor's budget. Um, the governor's budget, the, the downside was that it did not finance itself. It required making cuts somewhere else in the state budget. So what we've uh, expressed uh, to the House and to the, uh, the administration is that we would like a construct that pays for itself internal to this new housing initiative. For sure, housing at all income levels, uh, uh, we could use more of it. And so it is certainly not a dead proposal at this point. We're just trying to find a way to do it uh, that doesn't ox some, uh, gore someone else's ox. Well, I don't know if I said that one quite right, but I think you get the point. I think we got the point. Let's talk about the minimum wage. At the start of the session, it seemed like there was a fair amount of support for legislation increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2020. But as the House explored this issue, concerns were raised about the bill. The House discovered some people would lose some of their state benefits with a higher minimum wage because their salaries would exceed eligibility levels for these programs. You know, in your speech back in January, you talked about the need to address poverty and income inequality in Vermont. Are you disappointed by the lack of action by the House, or does their lack of action actually make sense? Well, on this one, I'll take responsibility on behalf of the Senate, because the Senate, of course, can advance a minimum wage bill before waiting for action from the House. What we, our approach has been, and I absolutely believe that the fundamental uh, judgment on how we perform, looking back a few years from now, is what we have done to decrease income inequality and give more people at the bottom end of the income spectrum a chance to have a good life here. Um, but when you do that, there are consequences to some of the votes you cast. So the minimum wage increase uh, is something that most members of the Senate are ready to stand behind, but they want to make sure we don't have those unintended consequences, particularly of reducing the child care benefit that people get. So on the one hand, we would be happy to see more money in the pocket of a young, low-income parent who happens to be getting minimum wage today. But if it means they will lose child care benefit, and no longer be able to go to work in the first place, we haven't really solved that problem. So what we have said in the Senate is that the first major policy bill we will be voting on when we come back in 2018 is a minimum wage increase. But my hope is that when we do so, it will also include some remedies to avoid some of these what are called benefit cliff issues, which discourage people from working. So do you have to have benefits that are sort of phased out? Well, you can come up with a variety of different uh, structures to, to try and lessen the problem. But I think what we find generally attractive is that if you increase the minimum wage in Vermont by 50 cents a buck, whatever the number is, it helps about 70,000 workers, which is a number I have to say when I first heard that, it was a, a shocking number. We know there's a lot of people who work minimum wage jobs, but 70,000 is a number that is just so off the charts. We have our uh, joint fiscal office doing some investigation about what they think the impact on businesses, in particular the smallest businesses, would be. That's another thing that we want to be very careful about. If there's any job loss projected from an increase in the minimum wage, we want to know what we're getting into so that we can try and minimize those kinds of disruptions to employment. 
What about paid family leave? Uh, House Ways and Means Committee has uh, passed out a scaled-back version of this bill. It would now provide up to six weeks of paid leave, uh, a small payroll tax as well, imposed on employees on their salaries up to $150,000. What are your thoughts about the House approach? Well, we, and I, I'll say there are members of the Senate who, who very much support uh, some kind of paid leave bill. Uh, the original paid leave proposal that moved out of a first committee was entirely on employees, and it added up to about $80 million. And I guess the way I'd say the Senate has viewed this is that we know that it's attempting to provide a meaningful benefit to those people who get some kind of sickness or pregnancy or, or several other things that would qualify them to be home and receiving some income replacement. But with the minimum wage, the current construct is that it would, if you increase the minimum wage, approximately 70,000 Vermonters would see a direct benefit. And then a subset, six or 10,000 people, we have to figure out a solution around the childcare benefits and the other programs they might lose as a result. Paid leave would be a cost to even more workers than that, but with a benefit that would only accrue to those who actually take the paid leave benefit. And so it kind of reverses the number of people who benefit and flips it on its head. So I think our first order of business in the Senate has been that we will increase the minimum wage because we think it has the most direct benefit to close that gap between the two Vermonts I described in January. So if you have a paid family leave bill, should the cost be shared between employees and employers? Well, every other state that has proceeded in any manner on that has had it be uh, divided. I I believe that I'm right on this, has uh, divided it in some share between the employer and employee. Um, The saleability in the Senate, I think, is is quite hard if it's 100 percent on the employee. But uh, since the bill is still moving through the House process, I I can't say for sure quite what we will receive uh, if and when we receive the bill. Let's talk to Martin in Fletcher. Hey, Martin, welcome to the program. I am sorry. It's Mark. Okay, Sorry about that. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for taking my call. It's been very interesting. Uh, I would like to ask uh, Senator Ash, uh, I, I have a very strong uh, feeling about lack of transparency and in process information and access for the public to a lot of uh, the committee decisions that can be easily stymied by small special interests once they get out of, out of the House, and uh, it just... It's just lack of uh, access and transparency that, for example, uh, the Attorney General's Office concerning public records, uh, how uh, Mr. Donovan has been, you know, a strong proponent of transparency, but when it comes down to it, it's uh, holding on to that, that information that benefits special interest every time, gas, uh, you name it. Well, I, you know, it's an interesting uh, challenge uh, for many public uh, agencies in Vermont, not just the legislature, but even down at the local level. Um, I, I'll say that striking the right balance between uh, being transparent and accountable to the taxpayer, but also uh, freeing up some time from being transparent and accountable to actually keep moving forward and doing things. Uh, 
public records requests, for an example, under the past administration, we actually required, I believe, a full-time person just to respond to the constant barrage of public records requests from uh, various citizens, some of whom were out of state. Uh, in, in the Senate, the first uh, uh, bill out of our Government Operations Committee this year was a Senate ethics bill, which meant to provide more disclosure to the public about uh, the activities uh, in government. Uh, it was not a a perfect bill. No bill that comes through really is perfect, but it was a start to providing more insight into the decision-making process, knowing that it also reserved the right to make modifications in the future if need be. Let's turn to Nicholas, who is calling from Shelburne. Hi, Nicholas. Welcome to the program. Uh, hi, how are you? And uh, Tim, uh, hello. Uh, I think we met over the Judiciary Committee quite recently regarding House Bill 143, which is the uh, Transportation Network Company vehicle uh, bill. Anyway, uh, the Senate may be passing this. It's actually a taxicab bill. Um, do you think it would be better if the local municipalities still retain the, their right to do taxicab licensing, et cetera, et cetera? House Bill 143 is really a taxi licensing scheme on the part of the TNC companies such as Lyft and Uber. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on this bill that's going to the Senate or maybe going to the Senate floor for a vote this session? Well, thanks. And I do remember meeting you. Uh, and I would say that the, the bill, first of all, just for the listeners, is still working through the committee process. It's in our Senate Finance Committee right now, I believe. Um, so whether it meets the end of session deadline here, where the, the sand in the hourglass uh, is, is running low, um, but I think I, I, the intent of the Senate is not to fundamentally uh, uh, uproot the right of communities to have their own regulations. On the other hand, we have this new uh, economic model of companies who have drivers for hire, basically uh, Uber and Lyft are two examples. Uh, and one of the major concerns that motivated taking some action, I'd say there were really two. One is making sure that the insurance protections are in place, uh, both for the driver uh, who is logged in to be one of the drivers for one of these services for the passenger who happens to be in one of those vehicles, but also for pedestrians who might get hit by people who are driving around as part of an Uber or Lyft or some other service. So that's that's one part of the uh, equation. The second is the background check piece, which I don't know if you follow the news, but in Massachusetts they found thousands of Uber drivers, it turns out, failed the background check, and it wasn't just for suspended licenses. You had sex offenders and violent criminals who were some of the people who ought not to have been uh, driving people for hire, but were. So uh, there are still details to work through. And, uh, you know, I'll be following up with other committees to make sure we're not inadvertently handcuffing uh, our local communities. We had a question from one of our listeners about the the name Vermont and marketing Vermont products. And we certainly see that with maple syrup. Uh, this involves beer, and a company on the West Coast marketing Vermont farmhouse beer. Is this something that needs to be dealt with? Well, it's an interesting issue because uh, Vermont beers obviously have uh, now stand out internationally as a uh, place of origin to find really good beer. I mean, when you have the top-rated beer, according to the beer, beer lovers uh, uh, out there, uh, and clearly we have beer tourism, which no one would have even kind of thought of as a term a couple of years back, but now it's very real as evidenced by waiting lines at Hill Farmstead on the weekends where people are caravaned for a mile from the front door. Uh, 
but we have to be protective of that uh, that culture and that brand and that identity of our Vermont brewers. And um, we've reached out to the Attorney General's office to start exploring whether uses of the term Vermont in various beer labels and beer types uh, is a breach of our place of origin rules. Um, many people will be familiar with the Mackenzie of Vermont uh, uh, enforcement a number of years ago, also Cabot, uh, which has had to change its labels. Um, at the same time, we don't want to uh, allow other people to appropriate the value that's been created by Vermont brewers. And I'll give an example. If if you were driving from southern New England up to Vermont and all along the New Hampshire border, New Hampshire breweries were saying they had Vermont ale, Vermont farmhouse this, Vermont that. The question is, does it make someone less uh, desirous of continuing to their travels up on 89 to get into uh, Vermont and go to the Vermont breweries? That's, there is an economic uh, uh, consequence if that occurs. So we want to be protective. We're working with the AG's office to see what we can do about it. Got just a minute or so left, but what's been the most challenging part of your job as Senate president this year? Well, I'm the, the, the most human side of it is that as much as I thought I'd figured <clears throat> the place out, every day I learn a ton of new things, um, both in terms of my abilities and what I need to get better at in terms of working with my other 29 colleagues, but also this interaction between this, the House, the Senate, and the governor's office. And f it's really a three-way negotiation that's happening at all times. Um, but like I said before, one of the th things that I feel so fortunate about is there are 29 other people in the Senate who are really wonderful people, which makes all of it so much better. And in fact, in nine years, I probably served with, I don't know, 300 legislators. There's been maybe two or three who I didn't think were the nicest people. You know, 99% isn't so bad. So uh, possible adjournment in two weeks? I think we're, we're pretty much on target for two weeks from tomorrow. Of course, things can happen that uh, require us to either take another day or two. I, my, I've always uh, defied people who get obsessed with the adjournment date because I've seen the legislature make million-dollar problems in order to save thirty or 40000 bucks, and I don't want to contribute to that. We'll be following many of these issues in the weeks ahead. Senate President Tim Ash, many thanks for being on the program Bob, today. thank you.